Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast. I'm Michelle Dunbar. Mark Sharon and I will be talking today about what do you do when you want to want to quit? I think we've written about this before, but we've never really done a podcast on it. A lot of people get to that point where they're not quite ready to stop their heavy use, but they really want to want to stop. Um, We wrote the Freedom Model for Addictions, Escape the Treatment and Recovery Trap, and the Freedom Model for the Family to help people to learn how they can overcome addiction and move on with their lives. We offer an incredible opportunity to work with us directly in private, one-on-one classes. You can learn about all of our products at thefreedommodel.org. All right, so, so yeah, we see this. Sometimes people come into the retreat and... And they're, you can tell that they're not quite ready. And I know I was that way for about six months where I wanted to stop. I wanted to want to stop, but I still was doing, you know, using very heavily. It was actually the most dangerous point in my usage. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I. So we, we just had a lady here who was in that place. Yeah. Right? And we see that probably 10% of the people that come to the retreat... Um, you know, they, they pick us because we're different. Yep. They don't want the disease nonsense. They Maybe they've been exposed to some treatment that they that doesn't resonate with them. They don't want 12 steps. That was the case with this with this uh, young lady. And, but, but they still struggle with the perceived benefits of what they're getting right. out of it. So it's, it's a case where the, the, they want the consequences to go away because it's becoming painful. Yep. But they also don't know how to let it go, how to how to move past that. You they know? still they're still living in the fantasy world. Yeah. You know, of that that substances can do these magical things for them. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's just a hard place to be. I and as a teacher, as somebody that's teaching the model, it's really tough because um, the person will will lie. Yes. You know, and they'll say, like, like, I want this so bad. And you know what? I think they do, but at the same time, they don't. They, no, they, on some level, it's you're, you're in that place where you're like, gosh, I really know that this, this the way I'm using is, is not conducive to my goals, right? Yeah. I think that, that with a regular person that wants to be done with it, we start the whole process of the freedom model with getting rid of the mythology, right? Yes. With these people, though, I do I do something different. I bypass that because I'm not sure they're ready for it yet. Right. Because, because what I do instead is I work on life movements right off the get-go. Now, let me tell you why I do that. So, And let me explain what life movements is. Life movements is the portion of the program that we usually do at the very end which is uh, building a direction for the person. How you move on. Yeah, how you move on. What does that mean? You know, And we create three different lists that, that build into a doable task list. So when they return home, they're moving in a new direction, right? And they're finding their passions. They're, yeah. they're moving on. It's a process of moving on. So I wouldn't normally do that with somebody until the end because you got to get rid of all the drug mythology but with these people that want to want to quit they they're really not ready to let go of the mythology no so 
So I, and they also are really stuck in the present, which is they're stuck in the, be, the perceived benefits of, of drug use and substance use. So, so I have to sort of jog them a little bit, like shake them up a bit. And the only way I've found to do that is to talk about what does moving on look like. Now, I'm going to tell you right away that you can sit there and talk about moving on. You can build life movements. And if you haven't gotten rid of the mythology on the front end, that person's going to go back to use. But the reason I do this is because when they go back to use, at least now they have this concept of drugs aren't everything. Right. I, I actually have the potential to move past this. So that's all I'm doing with those people is I'm trying to show them, hey, there's there you really can have a better life without yes. it. Yes. You know? Um, you can be happier making a change. That's it it starts it opens that door to the possibility that, ooh, maybe I can be happier if I if I'm not using in this fashion. Yeah. You know, that, you know, and you can start envisioning because what happens when you, you know, get in this place where everything is about getting high, you have tunnel vision and you really can't see your way around it. Um, so all that the life movements does is it kind of opens the door wider so that you can kind of start looking, seeing around, oh, maybe, maybe I can, I can do this, this and this with my life, but this... The substance use is a little bit in the way. And well, that's exactly it. So here, here's the deal. What Life Movements does in this situation, if we haven't gotten rid of the mythology because the person's hanging on to it and they like it at some level, um, what you do is you create a scenario with Life Movements that makes a comparison happen. Right. You know? So they, they go out and they try their new lifestyle, right, with life movements, and they find that it's competing against this drug use. Now, prior That's to them right. prior to them coming to us, there's nothing competing. They're just wrapped up in the drug use in this little circular vicious cycle. And the only thing in that little cauldron of hell stew that has any benefits is the drug. Right. So so what I do is I and let me tell you how this occurred to me. It was literally a, a moment in time when I was 18 years old, I was on my last bender and I was in that I want to want to stop place. Yeah. But I didn't know how to get out from under the perceived benefits of being drunk every day. Dealing with, you know, the benefits for me were withdrawal, staving off withdrawal and also, you know, just no risk. And, yeah. And, and no the, responsibilities. No, yeah. And... And just living that very reliable lifestyle, even though it was miserable at the same time. So, but I didn't have any vision of what I could be. I didn't believe that my life could get better. Right. So alcohol became the only, it's the devil you know, you know, became my best friend. Now, I'm walking, and I told this story in another podcast once. I was walking across to, to get to Grand Union from my college dorm room. And now I've been, at this point, I've been drinking for about two months straight. And I was really quite sick every morning. Um, I was struggling to make classes. I, the days, I would miss days and blackouts and things like that. And I, I got to a light and I was trying to cross the street and cars were pulling up and on Route 7 there. And a car pulls up. And I noticed it's a kid probably around my age, but he was in a suit. 
and I was standing in the cold. I remember it was cold. It was December, maybe November. And I was shivering, feeling really sick and hungover, going to get beer, right, with a fake ID. And I looked at this kid in the car, and I was really jealous because I realized he's going to work and he's making something of himself. And I knew I had that potential. And that really bothered me. Mm-hmm. It really bothered me. And I can still remember the type of car. It was a, a maroon a Chevy Celebrity that he obviously just bought. You know, it was a used little clunker. But he was out there swinging the bat. You know, he was yeah. out living his life. And he seemed happy. He seemed nervous, a little nervous. He was about my age, probably 18, 19 years old. And I was going to get beer. And I thought, wow, I want to be that guy. Yeah. Now, that was the first time in a long time at that point, months, where I had any basis of comparison of something to shoot for. And do you know mm. that that kid worked on my mind for the next 30 days? Just And that's your positive drive principle at work. Right. It, in the back of my mind, I was like, I'd like to be that kid. I want to be that kid. I want to be that kid. And it bugged me. But... That's what I try to create in, in, I try to make that experience happen with people in this mm-hmm. process of discovery in life movements in the program so that when they leave, and they, a lot of the times these people are honest with me, they're like, I'm not sure I want to quit yet. And I go, I get that. I get that. Yep. But let's just talk about the future. What are the possibilities? And they go, I don't know. You know, and then we go through that process. Now, all the mythology is still intact with those people because that's what they're hanging on to. Yes. And I work to get rid of the mythology. So we introduce all those ideas. They get through the program, but they're, they're, they're not buying it. You know, they're right. like, yeah, well, I still, I still like the buzz. I still like, you know, getting high. And I go, okay. Um, but you know what? Invariably, I get letters from these people years later. Yes. Right? You, did, you have two. I have two. And you get you get a phone call from the parent going, I don't know what you did, but my kid just stopped one day and his life yeah. took off. You know? Well, what, what, what happens is, you know, we do talk about, and, and I did go over that with this young woman, um, what, what drugs can and can't do for you. You know, you, you, did, you did the life movements and I was kind of on the other side of things you know, really, really parsing out what she thought substances were doing for her and, and kind of almost chipping away at that fantasy. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that... You Not know, even kind of almost. You really were chipping away at that fantasy. I was. Yeah. And and so what, what happens, and I, and I told her this would probably happen, I'm like, what's going to happen is you go home and you may do it for a while. And one day it's going to hit you that this is pretty boring. And it's not really what how you want to be living is not really what you want to be doing because it's exactly what happened with me without having all that in the front end was when I when I threw pretty much threw everything away and I spent six months doing nothing but drinking um it it, it got to a point where I was like this isn't this isn't good like I I don't I don't think I want this anymore I it's not it just I got I got tired of it yeah, I, I legitimately got tired of it, um, and 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 I had believed on some level that I was out of control because I was told I was an alcoholic. But even with that whole belief system intact, that I couldn't stop, I did. Yeah, you know my desire to not feel drunk 
after six months of being drunk, outweighed my belief system that I couldn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's it's a it's a matter of possibilities. It's funny because I I worked so hard. Well, we all did. The, the whole team worked so hard at finding out what how the human psyche is motivated, right? Yeah. And and really that's the crowning achievement of what we've done is figuring out that. And that's that we are always moving in the direction of what makes us happy. And if you can show people that that's the truth, that they're always seeking a better, more beneficial place for themselves in every right. action and reaction that they make in their lives, then it becomes it becomes an easy process. And here here's the tools that we would use in the freedom model. And that's a benefits to benefits analysis of the choices we make. That's the tool. That's the thing that if you show people that they're motivated right. by happiness and that they can that that they don't have to look at things as um, good and bad, but rather, what are the benefits of this style of life, and what are the benefits of that style of life without substances in it? And people really, really start to look at it and go, "Oh my God! I, you mean to tell me I can be happy without it?" Right. And that's that's the argument. That's the piece of the puzzle that seems initially to these people, me included. Seems impossible. Exactly. But that's what that kid on the street in his car represented to me. Oh my God, I could be doing something better. Prior to that, for months, I didn't believe that. I was in my own little hell stew world, stirring the pot, and just living in this tiny, tiny myopic world. And uh, it's an awful place to be. So the real key to this whole thing is showing people that they're, first of all, capable of liking something more than heroin, booze, whatever. Right. You know, cocaine, whatever it is, meth. Um, and that they, they really can move in that direction, that it's doable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So wanting to want to stop is, is, can quickly change to wanting to stop and stopping if the person can see the benefits in it. Right, right. And, here, and here's the thing. You kind of have to be willing to run the experiment. I, I, I think some people misunderstand us and they think that, that, that we're saying, well, you have to believe, you have to believe you're going to be happier in order to stop, right? So, so you already have to have that intact where, and some people do. Some people are like, you know what, I'm done. Yeah. I don't want to do yeah. this anymore. But for the people that, that are just at that, that first kind of, and a lot of people get to this stage multiple times in their heavy substance use where they're like, I wish I didn't like this. Yeah. You know, so much. I, I wish that I, I want to want to stop. Right. So, so you, you have to be willing to run the experiment be like, maybe I can be happier. Mm-hmm. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. You, you don't, you don't have to know you're going to be happier. Um, you know, Steven talks about it in his Ted talk and he's talked about it a lot where he just, all he had to do in the beginning was allow for the possibility yeah. that he could, that, that maybe I can be happier not doing this. Maybe there is a way, um, that I can feel as good as I believe I feel on heroin, not doing it. It's so crazy that we've created, we've created in our culture, uh, an idea that you'll never feel better than you will on drugs. I know. That is a guaranteed way to keep people addicted. Yes. That's to feel compelled, to feel diseased, to feel hopeless, to feel like there's no other option available to them. It's criminal. It's yeah. wrong. 
I mean, it, and it's so ridiculous, you know, that that a numbing sensation would be the ultimate. That's ridiculous. Right, right. It's, you know? and, it's, and it's complete and utter bullshit. It's the same thing that happens when you fall in love with someone and then, you know, you're in love and it's wonderful and then something happens and you're not with this person anymore. I mean, the majority of people move on. Yeah. And they and they open their mind to the possibility, maybe I'll find somebody better. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, th- I that's why I compare um, heavy substance use to relationships because... In the beginning, it's totally wonderful. It's because it's new. It's new, and you're like, "This is the be- this is the best feeling I've ever had." Um, but what a what a terrible mindset to have is like, "Oh, this is the best feeling in the world, and I'm never gonna feel this way again about anything else." And now think about this. Think about if you use that analogy. Let's say that that relationship gets old. Yeah. Becomes abusive. Right becomes physically a detriment to you. Yes. Becomes emotionally massively draining to the point of hopelessness. And then somebody walks up to you, a marriage counselor walks up and says, that's the best you're ever going to feel. Right. That's it. I'm sorry, Michelle, but that's the best you're You're ever... You're never going to fall in love like that again. Yeah. You have to stay with this because, well... You're powerless and, over oh, that. Or you can leave it and pine away for it for the rest of your life. Yes. The, the alternative is that there's no other person for you. And you now, you're only going to pine away for that old relationship how it was at one time. Right. I mean, everybody, everybody that listens to that would say, that's ridiculous and, right. and totally offensive. Well, that's what we're telling people with drugs. Yep. It's, just as ridiculous. Yep, that is the treatment model, uh, the disease treatment model in a nutshell, is that, you you know, this is the best feeling you're ever going to have. Um, so because of that, you have to pray and you have to, uh, you know, just accept that daily reprieve. You and know? and you, you really are so fragile and weak and so without willpower, which is a total distraction. It has nothing to do with willpower. But... It, they say you're, you're so weak and fragile that you're now in need of continuous support by a third right. party, right? So you need treatment. See, that's what this is all about. All this mythology is designed to keep you in treatment, paying the bill. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's a $40 billion industry now a year, um, and they're just teaching people how to stay a minion of that system. Yep, It's exactly. super sad. It's incredibly sad because it's a lie. It is a total lie based on, based on the thoughts of one dude. Yeah. One dude, uh, almost a hundred years ago now, who, um, you know, figured out for himself. But it, but ironically, okay. She's talking about Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson, right? Ironically, Bill Wilson did exactly what we talk about with the Freedom Model. He figured out that he could be happier. Not drinking, right? Yeah. And then he he dove into a basically building a business. Yeah, he built a giant cult that was a money generator. Uh, yep, yep. It was a, a pyramid scheme. Yeah. You know, and and figured out how he could get rich, how he could capitalize on the vulnerabilities of people. Um, and and I would you know I I'd like to say because I wasn't there. 
I'd like to say maybe he had the best of intentions. I can tell you he didn't. I don't he, think he did. Well, he wrote about it. He wrote that he was going, his greatest insecurity as a boy was that he would never be a captain of industry. And as he put it, and this is a direct quote, that he would never be a number one man. Right. And when he figured out up in that clubhouse, AA clubhouse, when he was poor and he had holes in his shoes and AA was floundering and everybody was getting shit-faced around him and it was a total catastrophe. Oh, wow. It was a complete and utter failure, he said. And he was depressed. He was in a two-year depression, homeless, with Lois sticking with him, his wife. God he was sitting her. in that upstairs attic of, of the first AA clubhouse down in Manhattan and he said, you know what? I'm going to write a book that changes all this. So he wrote the fictional piece called Alcoholics Anonymous. Yep. And he said in that book, this is how the first 100 men and women of AA got sober. They didn't. We, we know that statistically that never happened. That never, it was complete fucking fiction. He made it up. Yeah. And so you're absolutely right that he figured out how to be a number one man because that's what his positive drive principle was. That's what his interpretation of happiness was, that he was going to be a cult leader. Yes. And um, and at one point it was he was so utterly power hungry that he called it the Bill W movement, right? And then the people that were around him said, "No, that's never going to fly. We're not going to put up with that bullshit. Let's call it Alcoholics Anonymous," which is equally weird, to be honest. That you have this clandestine anonymous situation where you don't even call each other by their, your last name, right. and all of that is a cult tactic to get rid of identity. It's, right, you know. Right, that's they, the, all of the traditions were about. Nobody, nobody can speak for AA except for Bill. That's right. You know, it, it it meant that there was no other personalities that would get in the way, and and he did become. He is still to this day like a deity. Yeah, he's seen as the prophet. They say he's the prophet. Of, mm-hmm. You know, he was ahead of his time. He's the alcoholic's prophet. Um, he's destroyed millions of lives. Destroyed yeah. them. You know, trapped them created a treatment industry. He was instrumental in getting the government involved. I mean, there couldn't be anything worse for people than to be told that they're powerless, hapless victims at a time in their life where they actually feel like one. I know. It's tragic what he did. Um, Tragic yet brilliant. Yeah. No, he was great at promoting his cult. Yeah. And, and, And quite frankly, a lot of really smart people buy into... The AA premise. I mean, we did. We did, and now we were raised in it. I'm not sure if we weren't, if we would have as I, much I, as we I did. I can almost guarantee I wouldn't have. I can remember being 14 and being heavily using from 13 to 14 years old and then just quitting for like six months. Yeah. And thinking, all this AA shit is nonsense. I remember that yeah. as a kid, you know, but I was surrounded by it. I was absolutely surrounded by it, you know, all my siblings and my, my mom and... And it just warped, warped my my thinking. So yeah, I think that if if I hadn't been involved in in treatment and AA and rehabs and all the halfway houses my mom was involved in, I don't think I would have. I think yeah. I would have taken the natural route of having some fun and moving on. But instead, by eighteen, I was having freaking liver failure and dying. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy what was going on. Well, and and I so yeah, I don't think I would have either. But we're also people that question a lot of things. But there, the vast majority of people in the world are followers, yeah. and and even very smart people, you know, 
won't think critically about certain things. Right. And and when you're so vulnerable, when you're in that place, the want to want to quit place, because um, that's a lot of the people that end up at AA, um, and you're kind of shoved there through the courts or through ultimatums or you know interventions or whatever it is. Like everybody's like, okay, well let me just go check this AA thing out now. Thankfully, most people don't stick it out. Right. Um, especially the want to want to quit, quit crowd, um, because because it doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't make sense to them, and um, you know the most desperate people do stick it out. Right. I mean that that really is what we saw when we were there, is the people that those of us like us who you know we quit and then several days later we ended up at a meeting, um, you know post detox. You know, thinking that we, and then, and then somehow you get twisted around thinking, I didn't quit on my own. I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. You give credit to the wrong things. Mm-hmm. You know, you give credit to alcohol for the fantasy, and then you give credit to quitting the alcohol to a bunch of people. And neither are true. It's all you, because there's only you inside of you. That's it. I mean, there's no. Booze doesn't have a mind. It doesn't come into your mind and selectively change you. And certainly there's no group of drunks, you know, at AA that selectively go into your mind and change your motives. You know, there's no bit of advice that that, um, is going to change you without your express internal permission. It's all you. It's all you. The key, though, the key, though, is getting the right information. That's right. So if you if you go to a treatment program, you go to AA, and you're getting the wrong information. Which you're going to get. Which you're going to get. Um, the wrong information will may motivate you if you don't know it's wrong initially, right. right? So it may motivate you to stay stay abstinent out of fear for right, a period right. of time. Right, I was just going to say to be cornered into abstinence. Yep, yep, yep. But eventually, your PDP wins out. So what happens? So the people that, that do get it, I say get it. The people that do stay abstinent doing AA or after they've gone to treatment programs at some point have to make that switch in their minds of I'm actually where they realize I'm actually happier. I'm actually happier with this new lifestyle that's abstinent. Um, If they keep the fear-based abstinence, eventually, eventually, and they still believe and they're still hanging on to the mythology and the idea that I, oh boy, there was nothing that felt like being high. There's nothing that felt like being drunk. Eventually, they make up. They usually go back to it. Yeah. Um. You know, because you you can you can only be motivated by that fear for just so long. That's right. You know, and then and then you're you know you're wanting to be happier wins out, or it could be that something goes wrong in your life, and you genuinely believe that substances fixes it, or gives you a distraction. Or helps you to cope or escape or whatever it is. That'll win out because you're thinking, you know, I need this yeah. in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. So so let's go back to if you want, if you're in that place where you're still, you know, may, you're still using heavily. Um, you've tried meetings. You've tried treatment. But you still, you're like, boy, there's, there's something still wonderful about the way I'm using if that's the case, I want you to sit down right now and list out the possibilities of what would be better, what would be better, not, I don't want to talk about consequences or anything. None negative. of that. Only what would be better if you quit or you did less. What are the benefits of those things? And start thinking in that direction 
and your positive drive principle will start to explore. It'll be expressed. Yeah, what and would you be doing? What would you want to do with your time that you're not doing now? Right, right. What, what improvements in your relationships would you make? How would it change your relationship with your wife, husband, friends, children? Parents. How would it affect you monetarily? How would it affect you? And then what's going to happen is you're going to vacillate. And let's say the next time you get high, you say, see, see, even with looking at all this positive stuff, I still get high. Well, that's okay. You, yeah. still, you still believe in the benefits of use. Then the second thing you're going to do, if that's the case, if you find yourself immediately going back to drinking and drugging, you need to read the freedom model and yeah. come to grips with that, that you're living under mythology. And we need to devalue the drug through the freedom model process. And then we need to increase the value of your future by moving on. Um, if you do those two things, you'll never drink and drug again. You'll move on. One more thing, though, that I think is very important, and that is stop beating yourself up. Yep. You know, yeah, it, guilt and shame don't work. Guilt and shame are useless at this point. They haven't stopped you up until now. Right. It's not going to work in the future. And what it does is it makes being high when you when you're like like literally being I don't know, suffocated by guilt and shame, it makes being high seem that much more attractive. Yeah. And it's and it's a veil. It's a it's a it's a dam that blocks you from from analyzing your positive drives. So um, guilt and shame have no good value intrinsically. Yeah. 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 So all right, we're coming up on thirty minutes. Um, thank you everybody for listening today. As always, you can reach Mark and I at 888-424-2626. And you know, even if you are listening and you think somebody else can really benefit from this send them our podcast you know send them a link to our website um and let them know that that we answer the phone we're available yeah let's give that number again it's 888-424-2626 you can get more information through our websites thefreedommodel.org and soberforever.net soberforever.net uh has pictures and uh like a video tour of our retreat if that's something you might be interested in doing we allow three people here at a time right now um each person has their own bedroom and their own bathroom and they work with mark and i one-on-one um the whole time that they're here the freedommodel.org is our hub it has a ton of free resources and information including video lessons these podcasts free ebooks and information about our at-home private instruction program you can also get free digital editions of both our books freedom model for addictions and the freedom model for for the family just type in coupon code freedom 100 at checkout to get those you can get our books on amazon like paperback editions or kindle editions or um, any of the other online retailers Um, you can also email us at info at thefreedommodel.org follow us on social media facebook twitter instagram linkedin and you can subscribe to the freedom model youtube channel we have like probably over 100 videos on there now Um, We have three Facebook groups we started for people to discuss their experiences breaking free from addiction and recovery. They are the Freedom Model Group, Moving Beyond Addiction and Recovery, and Families Moving Beyond Addiction and Recovery. From everyone here at the Freedom Model, we wish you well. Until next time. And if you need detox, detox. uh, we recommend Gallus Detox. That's G-A-L-L-U-S Detox.com. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everybody.